you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, a live literary event series from LAist. We are back with guests, author Amanda Montel and actor Bella Lavelle. You can find us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum. Tickets at LAist.com events. LAist Studios. Hi, everyone. This is Retake. I'm your host, John Horn. On this week's episode, with the Academy Awards just a little more than a week away, we're again bringing you conversations with some leading Oscar nominees. Later in the show, you'll hear from Luis Moreno Ocampo, a lawyer at the center of the true story behind Argentina 1985, nominated for Best International Feature. Justice is a permanent fight. And this movie, Argentina 1985, is about that. It's about showing you can win. You can win. And the, the film is about real life, so you can win. But first... You're hearing the opening track titled Welcome from the Oscar-nominated score for Babylon. The film is about the wild excesses of 1920s-era Hollywood. I recently talked with the film's composer, Justin Hurwitz, at a live event hosted by Elliot to talk about the Babylon score and about his long-running working relationship with writer-director Damien Chazelle. Hurwitz took home two Oscars at the 2017 Awards for La La Land's original score and original song. At the outdoor event in Pasadena last weekend, with fresh snow covering the nearby San Gabriel Mountains, Hurwitz brought along a seven-piece band to play a variety of cues from Babylon. Here you'll hear the tracks from the film itself. Justin has worked with Damien Chazelle for many years, I think all the way back to college. Is that right? Yeah, we met when we were 18, actually, the first week of freshman year of college. And you were roommates or just happened to run into each other? We became roommates sophomore year. That would be <laughs> you, you good ditched, luck if they had just randomly put you us together. You ditched your roommates. Um, and then you worked on a movie uh, in college, correct? Yeah, we started this little movie called Guy and Madeline on a Park Bench, which it's very rough around the edges, but if you, it's also kind of clearly a prototype for La La Land. It's a song and dance musical. We were very inspired by, you know, French New Wave stuff. And it's it looks very different. It's 16 millimeter black and white, but it's also lush orchestra, orchestra meets jazz rhythm section. So it was, in a lot of ways, we were really working out some of the the sounds and ideas that we were going to later do with uh, La La Land. I first met Justin when he was working on a movie that I suspect you saw called Whiplash. Um, and that was, what, 10 years ago now, unbelievably. Um, we're going to hear a lot of music from Babylon. So before we start hearing the music for people who haven't seen the the movie, there is what, two hours of music in this film. Yeah, I think a little over two hours actually. <laughs> so before we hear the first cue, you worked on this film with Damien for three years. Is that right? Yep. A little over three years. It was, um, we had to create about an hour of music before we could shoot the film, which we've been doing for that first film, for Whiplash, for La La Land, anytime you have music in the scenes of a movie, you have to create that music beforehand. So we had to create about an hour of music. 
um, before we could shoot the movie, and then we had to create a, about another hour of music of more traditional score um, after, once I could watch the cuts and I could sort of respond to what I was seeing. What is the first cue we're going to hear, and why is it important? We're going to do Voodoo Mama. It's the piece that Nelly, played by Margot Robbie, dances to at that first party. movie starts with this like 30 minute out of control party mounds of cocaine and naked people everywhere it's a very sort of hedonistic Damien is showing us the real hedonistic side of the 20s so it's this wild party and um Margot Robbie's character Nelly kind of takes over the dance floor and she just sort of owns the room and she crowd surfs and it's just this great moment for her and it's also when uh Manny uh played by Diego Calva He's just watching her from across the room, and that's kind of when he's falling in love with her. You know, one the biggest challenge for me and Damien was figuring out how we can make a movie in the 20s but sound nothing like 20s jazz. So what we talked about from the beginning was using bands that you could believe would be in the 20s, you know, a couple trumpets, saxes, rhythm section, but using them in ways that they were not used at all in the 20s, really built around these driving riffs. And we were talking about and, and being inspired by a lot of rock and roll early on. We were talking about the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and ACDC and talking about the kinds of riffs that you could have on an electric guitar, you know, driving it, but played by horns. So really, these first couple of songs are an example of that when you when you give these driving riffs to a horn section. Yeah, it reminded me of like Jack White and the White Stripes playing lead guitar. And I don't know if that was an inspiration, but that's what I heard. White Stripes, also great, <laughs> great riffs. In this part, we'll do this other track, Miss Idaho, which is also from that first party. If anybody knows our last movie, First Man, a theremin was kind of like the lead instrument of that score. It's this electronic instrument that you play by waving your hands at it. So we thought it was invented in the 20s. It was pioneered by this Leo theremin in Russia and uh, Clara Rockmore. I think she was like a violin prodigy. Um, and she kind of like collaborated on helping it be a good musical instrument, a usable musical instrument. So. Um, it was invented in the 20s, and we thought, why not use it for a couple of cues? I mean, these pieces are incredibly complex in their arrangements. Um, when you are submitting demos to Damon, when you're first having a conversation, what are you sending him? Is it piano? Are you actually, do you put in horns? What do you, what does it sound like when you're first trying out an idea and do you know what works by what doesn't? How do you decide on what's good and what's not? So pretty much every movie for us has begun the same way, which is me at the piano, noodling around, searching for uh, themes, melodies. Um, in this case, I talked about the riff-based music. So that's what I was doing. I was searching for riffs for the pieces at that opening party. And I'm doing that at the piano because I think I always start at the piano before I think about any instrumentation ideas because I don't want to be... I don't want to be thinking about, I just want to be thinking about melody for melody's sake. And I think that if you take something down to the 
simplest form, which for me, because piano is my instrument, is the piano, I, we can just sort of like think through, are these melodies catchy enough? Do they feel right? And if they feel catchy and good at a piano, then we can start building the arrangement and, you know, work hard at that part. So I'm starting at the piano, and this is where I'm very, very slowly, it's the most agonizing part of the process for me, um, because you never know when the right idea is going to hit. And I go through so many ideas later on in the process when I'm orchestrating, it's kind of like you're painting, you're filling it in, you're adding color and texture and you're, but this part of the process, searching for themes, searching for melodies, it's agonizing. And I go through idea after idea after idea, but ultimately we get to voodoo mama, do, 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 a red devil, a do, 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 those ideas first come at the piano after many many attempts and then once we like them then we start building them you know do we want saxes playing the riff do we want trumpets we start building it from there what are we gonna hear next a track called call me manny I talked about the rock and roll influences. The other major influence in this score is modern dance music. We talked a lot about how we can create the feeling you get from modern dance music like EDM, where it sort of raises your, your blood pressure and you feel these risers, rising, 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 and these drops and where the bass, you know, the bass and drums might break and then come in and it, it just feels like a surge that makes you want to move. Basically what DJs do and what producers do with dance music, we wanted to try to create some of that feel using um, acoustic instruments. So dance music on a sax uh, was one of our first ideas. So, um, Call Me Manny is one of the examples of the real sort of like dance style music on this, uh, in this score. So it would be a great honor, I suspect, if at the next Electric Daisy Carnival that some DJ plays their version of this song. Yeah, sure. I would love for I would love for somebody to remix it um, to add actual electronic stuff and make it even more contemporary. I think that could be really cool. And by the way, I said it's dance music, but it's not used uh, at a party. So Call Me Manny is um, uh, Diego Calva's character. Manny has just been elevated to like a studio chief. He started as a gopher and now he's a studio chief and like everything's going great. He's doing a lot of amphetamines, so he's kind of sweating a lot, and he's running around, and um, so it, it, yeah, it has that kind of like a little bit coked up feel. Everything's going great for the time being. Everything's going great for the time being, before things go off the rails. Coming up, more of my conversation with Justin Hurwitz, the Oscar-nominated composer of Babylon. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. 
Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Elias has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAS.com slash events. Welcome back to Retake. I'm John Horn. Let's get back now to my conversation with Justin Hurwitz, the composer of Babylon. Where did you and Damon talk about sense of humor in the music and how that would come across? That's a good question. There are a lot of like circus sounds in the score. There are other cues uh, where the cue is ostensibly sweet. Um, there are a bunch of cues that kind of belong to Manny and Nelly. There's a Manny Nelly theme. Like I said, he sees her dance at the party and he kind of falls in love and they have some scenes together. And even though the music is, um, those cues very sweet every now and then we bring in some circus sounds because, because their relationship is also all over the place. Um, and it's also just like so many other things in the story, just about to go off the rails. There's a composer in town, Nathan Barr, who has this uh, really cool studio and he has lots of eccentric instruments especially circus instruments so we recorded a calliope at his place um there's a lot of kazoos and slide whistles layers and layers of me just again at home just playing kazoos and slide whistles and party horns lots of those you know you blow into them (laughs) and they just make a like a squawk kind of like a really ugly sounding duck but I played those rhythmically to a lot of these tracks. <laughs> when you have a musical like La La Land, you can have an I want song where a character expresses his or her ideas and wants and needs. When you have score without performance of music in a picture, you can establish themes for certain characters. When you don't have the I want song and you have so much performance in the movie itself, how do you establish a theme from score that doesn't feel like it's kind of put on top of the music that's in the film. Yeah. So there are cues in this movie and most movies, I think that are, um, even if it's not a literal, I want song cause it's not sung, they still kind of can get at, they're still scoring some kind of yearning or some kind of, um, hope or some, something like that. So this movie kind of has two themes that are along those lines. Um, there is a Manny Nelly theme, like I said, which is kind of their romantic theme. So in that, in their very first walk and talk outs at the party, they're getting to know each other. There's this theme, which is actually, like I said, we started early. We created about an hour of music before we shot the film, but then we saved a lot of the music until post-production when I could watch the film and respond to the scenes, the performances, all the, you know, design of it, everything. Uh, which is what a film composer does, which is basically respond to what the movie's asking for. So anyway, we saved the Manny Nelly theme for till post-production, and we went around a lot of ideas um, until we discovered that what actually felt really right and also had some sort of narrative connections was if we took the tune that uh, we did on the on the baritone sax from Call Me Manny and Herman's Hustle, the one that went do 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 do, we actually slowed it down and made it um do 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 
do. It actually took on a really kind of wistful, hopeful um, feeling that we really liked. That being said, it's we went around so many ideas before we had the right instrumentation for it. So baritone sax couldn't do it on a on a Barry sax. So we we experimented. We went around a lot of different ideas, and what we ended up coming to was for all the Maninelli themes was a blend of three pianos. So the first piano is um, just a kind of a nice, sweet, mellow Steinway. For all of our scores, I like to pick out really interesting pianos pianos that have character. So I always go to this place, uh, Hollywood Piano, which now it's in Pasadena. You know, it's called Hollywood Piano. And um, they have, you know, like a warehouse, piano warehouse, basically. So I go and I find really interesting pianos. So there's a, there's a kind of 1920s, beautiful Steinway. And then the second piano is a spinet, like a small piano that uh, has tacks in the hammers to give it a twang and has also been detuned. So it's like a bit out of tune. And then the third piano is a very, very out of tune upright. <laughs> so you have th- these three pianos that are different amounts of out of tune. And we found that, and this took a lot of experimentation. So we tried a fourth and a fifth piano and that didn't, that was too much. But we came to this sort of recipe of these three pianos blended in a certain way. And you got the sweetness from the one piano and sourness from the other two pianos. And it felt just kind of broken and fragile like their relationship. I want to thank you. This has been a magical evening. Thank you, everybody. was composer Justin Hurwitz talking about his Oscar-nominated score for the movie Babylon. Coming up, the subject of another Oscar-nominated film on what it was like as a young prosecutor in the 1980s to take on the leaders of Argentina's ruthless military dictatorship. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. 
Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Welcome back to Retake. Hollywood loves a good David and Goliath tale, and Argentina 1985 fits the format. The film tells the story of a group of young, inexperienced lawyers in Argentina who dared to take on the country's brutal right-wing military junta in an effort to bring justice to the families of their estimated 30,000 victims. Leading the team of lawyers were prosecutors Julio Stracera and Luis Moreno Ocampo. The film from Argentina is directed by Santiago Mitre. In real life, Ocampo went on to serve as the first prosecutor of the International Criminal Court from 2003 to 2012, and he now lives in Malibu. Here's our conversation. Luis, thank you very much for joining us. It is almost 40 years since these events took place, and I'm wondering... Is there still work to be done, not just in Argentina, but maybe around the world? And how much progress has been made? Well, as you say, Argentina 1985 is about democracy in the world today. So it's about what happened in Brazil on January 8th this year. It's about what happened in Washington on January 6th, two years ago. I was teaching at Harvard last week, and a student from Kazakhstan told me, oh my God, the movie is so important for my country, Kazakhstan. You never finish doing justice. Justice is a permanent fight. You solve one case and the next problem is coming. So it's an endless battle. You, you never lose, you never win. You have to keep fighting. And this movie, Argentina 1985, is about that. It's about showing you can win. You can win. And the, the film is about real life, so you can win. I was curious about the difference or similarities between the 1961 film Judgment at Nuremberg and the movie we're talking about today, Argentina 1985. How would you say they are similar in how they can tell a contemporary audience what happened in the past and how, to quote Santayana accurately, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. That's great, no? It's a great line. Look, Judgment and Union was very important. It's a movie, 1961, about one of the Nuremberg trials, and it's presenting, people can understand the Nazis, how they were thinking. And that is very unique. Argentina 1985 presents how an entire country was a victim. But I don't know if you know, but the word Holocaust with capital letter, so meaning the extermination of the Jewish community, did not start with the Nuremberg trial. It started with a movie about the Nuremberg trial. <laughs> so the movie was 61, the trial was 1945. So the movie, 16 years later, started the change. And, and in some sense, this movie, Argentina 1985, is producing a similar impact because the film shows my young team. I was 32 in those days, but my team was between 20 and 26. So the new generation see that in the movie, the inspiration that they could do something different. They could change the world. And that's why this movie is so inspirational. I want to play a scene from the film. It's in Spanish, but I will explain what this scene is about when we come back from it. ¿Usted sabe quién fue Francisco Ortiz de Ocampo? Pariente suyo será. Exactamente, mi tatarabuelo. 
el primer comandante de la historia argentina. El primero de todos. ¿A usted le parece que yo puedo tener algo en contra de la institución militar? Lo que pasa es que yo soy abogado y mi obsesión es la ley y no puedo permitir que el que la rompa salga indemne. Rough translation, your character says, I love the law, I'm obsessed with it. I can't allow those who break it to get away with it. I'm curious about two things. One, this is a scene where you're speaking on a talk show. Did that happen? And are those words true? Both, yes. Both, <laughs> yes. And you know, this is a very important talk show because the journalist was a journalist who was the voice of the dictators, was a very famous journalist in Argentina in those days. And he was representing the dictator. That's why Estrasera, the main prosecutor, always refused to talk to him. And I said, look, we need people, the people who listen to him, we need to convince them. We need to establish the law because the law is about respect for everyone. And that is for me the concept that it was valid in Argentina in 1985 and is totally valid in the world and including the US 2023. Respect, respect for George Floyd, respect for gender differences, respect for poor people, respect. That's what we need. What was your involvement in the making of the film? Almost zero, almost zero. I love it because it's a the director was four years old when the trial happened. So this is a new vision. It's a vision of a new generation. He interviewed me many times, and he, I wrote the book, he wrote the book. So, but he was really documenting himself for three years before finished the script. And I think that's why the, the film is reaching so many people, because he respected the judicial process, but he made a film that you can laugh. There are many humor situations. It's a combination of humor and drama and seriousness that is amazing. I want to ask about something else that is true, and that is that your mother was actually a supporter of the dictator Jorge Rafael Videla, who was the commander of the army, a member of the junta, basically the de facto president, and let's just say not a good person. Can you talk a little bit about the importance of your difference of opinion with your mother about Videla and how that plays out in the film? Well, it's interesting what you said. General Videla individually was a very Catholic guy. He was going to the church with my mother. And my grandfather was a general, so my mother loved generals, and my mother loved General Videla. So I, I during the investigations, I never could convince my mother that I was right. She was opposing me. And, but then when the trial started and she listened a witness, a woman who had gave birth in a police car, handcuffed, she called me and my mother say, I still love General Videla, but you are right. He got to go to jail. So this is real story. This is a film that has been nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, it's won some other awards, a Goya Award. Why is it important that a movie like this is seen now? And what does that attention that an award nomination brings to it mean for more audiences to discover it? The fact that the movie was watched for one million people in one month in the theaters in Argentina, but then three more people, three, three times more people in Amazon Prime Video in Argentina itself. And then multiply for three more or 
10 more in the world. And the, the Oscar will probably multiply for two or three more, so 20, 30 million people watching this story. And, and that, is a con- that is a global community. Oscar is helping us. As Lionel Messi, he liked the movie and tweeted about it. And apparently, where more than 2 million viewers, new viewers in Amazon Prime Video. So, because just Messi make mention one. So, we are living in this global community and we have to use communication to understand how to fight for justice in different parts of the world. And Messi, the Oscar are helping us. There's a lot in the film about threats, physical, phone threats. Can you talk a little bit about being threatened by some people who might have been called to testify, some people who might have been convicted, some people who might have been related to the trials but not publicly identified? Well, yes, we receive threats, and but we, we're public officers. We're feeling that while we have a democracy, nothing will happen to us. The real heroes here are the witness, the victims. Imagine this woman had a baby in the police car going to make this statement public. So it's incredibly courageous. And she did it. So we have a hundred persons like her helping us to understand what happened to them. And we're able to transform their sad stories into evidence to convict the dictators. And that process is the magic of the film. I'm going to ask you this last thing. Lawyers and a lot of people otherwise love to talk about the rule of law. And when it comes to people in power, you mentioned Bolsonaro's refusal to leave office, Donald Trump's refusal to leave office or accept the results of the election. The same is happening in Nigeria right now. Given some of the progress that has been made, are you optimistic about the rule of law, especially those who hold great power in political office, or are you worried about it? If you give up, you lose. You got to keep fighting. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. Like an endless box match. You win, you win one round, you lose the next round, and you keep fighting. That is because people with power like to abuse power. Our job as citizens and prosecutors is to control those with power, to yes. limit them. I hope the Oscar will come because that will help to keep disseminating and expanding the number of people who understand the meaning of justice. Luis, muchas gracias por tu tiempo. Que tengas un buen día. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. That was lawyer Luis Moreno Ocampo talking with me about the Oscar-nominated Argentina 1985. The film is available on Prime Video now. Thanks for listening to Retake. I'm John Horn. We'll see you again next week. Retake is produced and engineered by Michael Cosentino, Monica Bushman, and Taylor Kaufman. The editor is Suzanne Levy. And special thanks this week to producer Marina Pena. This podcast is powered by listeners like you, donating as little as $5 a month. And we can only keep on making more episodes with your partnership. Support this show by donating now at elias.com forward slash join. Thank you. 
Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com events. See you there.